Well, Trinity, once again, I ask you to turn your attention to the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we were introduced to the Son of the Most High God. Jesus Christ set his foot onto foreign land and defeated demons as well as saved sinners. We saw two responses to such miraculous occasions, fear or excitement. And this week, Christ returns from the foreign land. He travels back among the Israelites and all their cultural and religious baggage is brought with him. And instead of Jesus standing amongst or against the religious leaders, we actually see faith. Faith that looks a certain way and trusts in a certain person. It's one of the few occasions in the New Testament where people, the people of Israel are actually described in positive ways. It's an odd text for our modern day because, well, faith is an odd concept. It's equally maligned and admired. Benjamin Franklin said, in order to walk by faith, one must close the eye of reason. Tim Minchin, popular atheist, said, science adjusts its view based on what's observed. Faith is the denial of observation so that belief can be preserved. There's a piece of culture that mocks faith for its lack of groundedness. Well, at the same time, we can see through conversations with neighbors and on social media and in national polls that spiritual awareness, Eastern mysticism, and astrology are actually growing in popularity. In the West, Pew polls point out that spirituality is the second fastest growing belief among the religious unaffiliated. It's odd. I've been told throughout my ministry all kinds of really interesting concepts about faith and belief. It's from something as simple as, I have faith and that is enough, to, I believe in the power of prayer. Now, both don't point out to really anything. Both say that they have some belief, but don't really know what they're believing. They don't expect anything. It's spirituality without a purpose. Faith without foundation is what is being described. The critique of the new atheist movement from the 90s and 2000s has led to an equal pushback of undefined faith, unorganized faith, because faith can't be pushed away. It's almost a part of us as people. So allow me, before we get into our text, to give you an example of unorganized faith, undefined faith. And it's from one of my favorite movies. Here we go. The Polar Express. What a great movie. Those have never seen it, it's a film animated by Robert Zemeckis, the same guy who did Back to the Future. It's an adaptation of the famous children's book, The Polar Express. And the movie portrays a young boy struggling with his belief in Santa Claus. When we meet him in the beginning of the movie, he is a decided Santa Claus atheist. He's going so far as to try and convince his younger sister that it is foolish to believe in Santa Claus and all those silly fairy tales. The Polar Express visits him on Christmas Eve and throws this hardened atheism about Santa Claus out the window. He travels north on the train to see Santa Claus, and throughout his travels he's confronted by sights and sounds that make him question everything. Seeing isn't necessarily believing, he finds. Or, as the conductor tells him, sometimes the most real things in the world are the things we can't see. Now, it's in that quote that you can hear, actually, the downfall of the movie. 
It lacks boundaries and clarity, or as one of you have actually said to me about this movie, it's a movie about belief in belief. It doesn't tell you what to believe in, it just tells you to believe. The only thing you need is to believe. Conclusion does well to critique the unbeliever's position, but it does a poor job of defining what the believer should hold on to. Our passage today gives us the characteristics of faith. It asks the questions, what leads us to faith? What does faith look like and who is our faith in? What we will see is that faith is understandable and believable, while at the same time it is something that is grounded and labeled. It's not ephemeral or limitless. It's in something and in someone. Those three questions will lead us. What leads us to faith? What does faith look like? And who is our faith in? That will drive us this morning. So let's, ask, let's answer this first question. What leads us to faith? And we begin with Christ and his disciples arriving back on the other side of the sea. After their foray into the foreign land, the return to the promised land seems to have put a newfound longing on the people of Christ, on the people for Christ. Mark tells us in verse 21, the great crowd awaited Christ as they approached the land. And in this crowd are two characters waiting to show us their faith. Jairus and the woman. Jairus is a high-ranking official in the synagogue, one of the rulers and decision makers. A very powerful man, he had a fair amount of money and influence. He was high up in the social order of first century Israel. As we'll see next week when we come to the conclusion of his story, he has multiple people help run his house, look after his children, and deal with really all all parts of his life. Now, if you really want a modern correlation, you can think of city councilmen, maybe a congressman or a senator. It's not so high up that he's untouchable, but he is a big deal. And what brings this high-ranking ruler and official to the beach to see Jesus? His daughter. Verse 23 tells us the youngest daughter is not well. She's on the verge of death. The situation must truly be dire if this man has come to Jesus. The religious leaders have shown their distaste for Jesus already. We've seen it in previous passages. They've accused him of working with demons. They've already begun to make plans for his death. And amidst that, also, we have Jairus, who has great wealth and power. He could go to any means to save his daughter. He could spare no expense. He probably asked every teacher, doctor, healer, priest, shaman that he could get a hand on, saying, come help me, my daughter is sick. Anyone, please. And he finds himself lacking, and so he gets to desperation. That desperation has brought him to Jesus Christ. He's at the end of his rope. He doesn't know who else to ask for help. He is in a dire situation. The woman is culturally opposite of Jairus. He's about as far down the social ladder as possible. To contrast, you can say just to begin with, she's a woman. We don't actually even get her name. All we get is that she is a woman. And a woman in the first century, though not thought of, were not thought of highly. They weren't property, as some may make that claim to it, but they weren't much better. 
They had their own courtyard in the temple, which pushed them further away from the presence of God. Their personhood was really grounded in their ability to give birth and to run a good household. If their husband died and they had no male male children, they were often left to struggle. The story of Ruth tells us the story of a woman who lost her husband, had no, no one else to care for her, and what did they have to do? Pick grains off the side of fields just to have enough food to eat. That's the danger this woman is dealing with. Really, the cultural life of women in the first century had two tenets. The temple and the household. God and family. And this woman in the crowd had both of these tenets taken away from her by this illness. Verse 25 and 26 describe the terrible plight of this poor woman. Twelve years of bleeding... Spending all her money, many physicians had seen her, yet they had made it worse somehow. The bleeding was most likely preventing her from having children, possibly from even finding a husband. Beyond all that, the law of the temple says women who are bleeding are unable to enter because they are ceremonially unclean. They can't offer sacrifice. They must wait until the bleeding has stopped before being cleansed and setting foot back into the temple. This poor woman suffered pain, she suffered shame, she struggled relationally and spiritually. Twelve years she struggled, talking to doctors and friends, family and strangers, anything to help her, and nothing has come of it. She's at the end of her rope. She cannot handle it anymore. She, like Jairus, is in a dire situation, begging for help. It's the first step when it comes to faith. How do we get there? Desperation. The realization of a great need is what leads us to step out in faith. It is the recognition that you cannot do it on your own. It doesn't matter how long you work, how much money you make, how much power you wield, you realize you cannot fix it. And so you're left grasping at something, at anything, anything to fix it. You step out to trust in someone else or something else. So you have to ask yourself, what is your greatest need right now? What takes up most of your time worrying throughout the week? I'm sure all of us aren't living the dream, as I like to say, whenever someone asks me how I'm doing. We're all concerned. We all have needs. We all are desperate for something, things we may not be desperately crying out for as we see in Jairus and the woman, but we do have the weight of a need amongst us. Maybe it's an illness. You've traveled to doctor after doctor after doctor and the problem still persists. The solution hasn't been made clear by the physicians. And so you're struggling with pain or concern or fear and you desperately identify with this woman. Maybe it's financial. You have a major problem in your home. Student loans are looming over you. You're living paycheck to paycheck. Christmas is right around the corner. You're wondering how presents, meals, and all the other great pieces of the holidays are going to fit within this dwindling bank account. Maybe it's relational. You see friends and siblings pairing off. You remain single. You try to get a relationship, you still can't find the right person. Or you found the right person, and that person actually doesn't really want to be with you. 
That's all you think about all week. Or maybe it's just something as general as anxiety about the future. From jobs to disease to homelessness to even governmental or neighborly overreach. You feel like the future is bleak and you find yourself in desperation. Hoping, finding something to change, something is going to have to change. It better happen. There are so many needs in this world. Which one brings you to desperation? I want you to sit in that place for a moment. Think about it. Think of difficulty and desperation. Now I want you to know that these needs, they're all a result of one thing. The result of sin. The desperate plagues around this world. They're a result of sin. Now before you jump at me and say, hold on, hold on, homelessness is not because of sin. Income inequality is not because of sin. People aren't dying on the streets because of sin. I'll say, well, on one end it is. Someone's greedy enough to not care. But even wider than that, sin is the deepest problem in this world. It's an outworking of all the selfishness we see week after week. It's all the anger and hate and pride you see everywhere, amongst yourself and amongst your friends and neighbors and people driving. Illness is because of sin, because sin has changed this world and brought illness into it. Relational deficiencies are because of sin, because sin broke our relationships. Sin is our problem. Once we recognize we can overcome this great need, we can't overcome this great need. Seen in all our examples, that's when we come to our first step in faith. I'll give you an example, a very prime example that we just went through. We just read the law during the order of service. Why do we do that? The law drives you to this place. It drives you to desperation. Now, I'm not saying to have a complete existential crisis right there in the pew. I'm not saying to do that. I'm saying have a minor existential crisis every week. Realize your need. Feel your desperation when you read the law. It's one of the hardest steps to get to. No one wants to rightly admit they are struggling that much. No one wants to admit they can't do it on their own. Christians and non-Christians alike struggle with this first step of saying, I need help. I'm a pastor and a church planter. When I went through the assessment to be a planter, they said, you are the star quarterback. That's how they described us. That's setting up some real big, big shoes to walk in. I struggle with recognizing my inability to grow and build this church. I struggle with it. I may appear put together up here, look at me, I'm smiling, happy, get some laughs. I say, hey, I'm living the dream. But in my heart, I struggle. I struggle as a man thinking, if I screw up this conclusion, they're not coming back next week. If I do this, they're not coming back because all they're coming for is to hear me. That's not true. And I need to know that. We all need to know that. We cannot do this on our own. All we can do is see our great need and reach out in faith. That brings us to our second question. 
What does faith look like? After Jairus and the woman have recognized their great need, they step before Christ, and they do actually the same physical action. Verse 22 and, 20, and 33. 22 and 33, where you need to look. Jairus, seeing Jesus, runs up to him and falls at his feet. The woman, after being healed, Jesus asks, who touched him? She comes and falls at his feet. In the medieval period, people would kiss the hem of the robe or feet of the kings and rulers. It was to show submission and humility. The feet and the hem of the robe were the dirtiest part of the person. It was the stuff that dragged along the ground. It was covered in mud and dust and all the vile parts of the world. Interacting with that low part of the person placed yourself at the same level as dirt. Two characters prostrate themselves. They bow down before Christ. They lower themselves before him. In a literal and physical description, they place Christ above them. This is the step beyond recognizing their need. They are now submitting themselves to an outside source. Pregerius, a ruler of the synagogue, it is a humiliating act. But he doesn't care. He's recognized the great need within his life. He has. His daughter is dying. Falling at the feet of Jesus is perfectly reasonable for him. He has put away his ego, his pride, his money, and he has knelt on the ground saying, This is the only chance I got. The woman, she may seem like she has nothing to lose. She's on the other opposite end of the cultural spectrum. Can sink to no lower, but if you look at the details, first she reaches out not to touch Christ, but just the corner of his garment. She doesn't ask for care. She doesn't ask for him to talk to her, to touch her. As Jairus says, come touch my daughter. No, she doesn't even want that. She wants to touch the corner of his robe. It's a humble reach. Then, when she is healed, she doesn't run away. Afraid of what will happen, she throws herself at the feet of her healer. This teacher that she has heard about believes she could solve this greatest need. You see, from the highest to the lowest, the most powerful to the least powerful, they are all swallowed their pride. That's what they've done. They threw away their fear. They overcame their concern for social ramifications, for religious problems, and they bowed at the feet of Jesus. Faith is humble. And again, we can keep walking through our order of service. It's easy. Our first point, right? Recognizing our need through the law puts us in a crisis, our desperation. What happens after the law is read? We confess. We privately and publicly confess. What does it take to confess to God that your sins are real and ask for forgiveness? What does it take to say, we are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us. What does it take? It takes humility. It takes dropping your pride and your ego. Confession, lowering yourself before God, takes a humble heart. Faith looks humbly up and says, help me. 
Now, I don't know how many of you have ever gotten into some real trouble in your life. I have. Needed to fall on the good graces of someone to forgive you and help you. On one occasion, I needed to make a public apology to everyone in my youth group at 17. So in my teens, I was uh, very interested, interested in stand-up comedy. I listened to a lot of comedians. Went to a few open mics, became friends with other comedians because most of them didn't succeed, so they had to get jobs at restaurants, and that's where I was. I thought of myself as a burgeoning young comedian. Started working on my act. Now, my youth group did a talent show during the winter camps. And so that's what I decided to dust off the old acts. One joke in particular that I enjoyed and I thought would fit well with the crowd was about the Lord's Supper. I talked about stale bread and checking the date on the body of Christ. I talked about turning the crackers into cereal to eat for breakfast. You know, general humorous, humorous ideas about the body and blood of Christ. Easy stuff to make fun of. It's very irreverent on the Lord's Supper, for a winter camp that was spent to go read the Bible, pray, grow spiritually. It was apparently too far, I guess. As my microphone was suddenly cut off, and I was escorted off the stage, I was highly reprimanded by the leadership. I remember the feeling I had the morning after. I was broken, I was tired, emotional. I had to walk half a block to get over to the dining hall where the leaders were having their breakfast and having a meeting. And I apologized to all of them. And then I had to ask them, can I have two minutes in the next session to apologize to the wider body? It's a really a feeling you don't forget. Asking for forgiveness. Asking for help from someone, anyone. I remember looking at that leadership group and thinking, these people have complete control over me. They are the ones who can decide whether or not I'm allowed to ask for forgiveness, whether or not they're to say, it's okay, Isaac, I know. You can do better next time. It's tough. It's humbling. See, recognizing the problem takes work, but asking for forgiveness, asking for help, it takes guts. It takes a broken spirit and a contrite heart. So practically, I will ask again, think about what problem you need, problem or need is most pressing on you right now, and think about what is the next step. What do you do when you're confronted with your greatest problem? When your greatest need, when you are in dire straits, what can you do? Do you get angry at yourself, thinking, I should have been able to deal with this? How can I not deal with this? What's going on? Pull it together. You promise yourself, you know what, I'm going to work twice as hard next time this comes up. Twice as hard, not three times. I'm going to get it done. I'm sick of this. Start blaming yourself. Turning outward, blaming other people. Saying, why did you get in my way? Why aren't you helping me fix this problem? What's going on? Or, do you humbly recognize your shortcomings? You recognize where you are falling down. And you look to someone powerful enough to help. Which brings us to our third question. Who is our faith in? Who is our faith in? Mark has shown us throughout the first five chapters of this book who the most powerful is. 
Last week we saw him defeat demons. Week before that we saw him quiet storms with his voice. He's healed people. He's outthought teachers. And now, now we see that he is the answer for the powerful ruler and the weak woman. Jesus Christ is the one that we should place our faith in. It is the foundation and the grounding that we need. He is the solution. And he is the one to come help us. He is the means to the answer and the answer itself. As we saw in Ephesians 2. The woman and Jairus both at the end of their rope humbly came to Christ for help. And Christ helped them. Now Jairus, he had most likely heard rumors of what Christ could do. Heard rumors throughout the temple, throughout the synagogue, like, oh, have you heard about this guy, Christ? He seems to be healing people, doing all kinds of crazy things. But Jairus has never shown or seen it. He may not have even believed them to be true. The woman, on the other hand, heard the reports about Jesus. It says so in verse 27. She may have heard the rumors. Conversations, reports. All kinds of things like that. Word spread, but she was not knowing exactly what was going on. Either way, both of these people did not know, they didn't know that he would help them. They haven't been around to see, to verify, to have any kind of complications. Says, hey, yes, absolutely, this guy will do it. He can. So they came. They came to Jesus hoping. They came to Jesus in faith. And that could be you right now. You could have stepped into church not knowing, not believing, having heard rumors, friends, family, someone else has said, hey, you should check out a church sometime. You're really struggling. Maybe something else is there. I mean, look at all these people. Christianity is the largest religion in the world. Shouldn't it be something you should check out? Maybe something's there. And so you come, kind of going, I hope, I hope this helps. I hope it fixes the problem that's going on in my life. Well, here it is. This is what Jesus does. When they're confronted with those who are hopeful, faithful, wanting to put their trust in him. This is what Jesus does. After seeing their humble faith, for Jairus first, what does Jesus do? He doesn't hesitate for a moment. Verse 24. Jairus tells this great plight and he says, please come put your hands on it. Come help her. It says, he went with him. No more questions were needed. No more details to be given. Jesus stepped forward after seeing this man's desperation and humility. That's the kind of Savior we want. An immediate one. One who doesn't hesitate to help us. One who doesn't hesitate to save us. If you've ever asked for help and felt the pain of someone going, do I have the time for this? Um, hmm. And you're just waiting there going, I just laid out my life for you to help. And you're deciding? Jesus doesn't wait. He's immediately there for you. He's immediately willing to pull you up and bring you salvation. Now for the woman, the woman suffering from social and religious outcast reaches out, touches the edge of Jesus' garment, heals her, and Jesus asks who touched him. She comes forward and falls at his feet. And what does Jesus say? Verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He assures them his ability to heal long term. He says, your, your illness is gone. No more will it be there. You don't have to worry about it coming back. I'm not some doctor who says, well, come back in a week. We'll find out if it's going to get worse or better. No, no, no. It's gone. That's his power. And beyond that, he relationally cares for her. Remember, she's been cast out. What does he call her? Daughter. See, Jesus' power is strong enough to heal an illness that no doctor could figure out. And his kindness and love are strong enough to welcome people in as family. This is what faith in Christ is. It's immediate. It's powerful. And it's relational. Jesus Christ will solve your greatest need. If you place your faith in him, he will be with you immediately. He will show you love and patience and kindness beyond anything that you've ever seen. You'll find salvation from your sins and from your faults. Salvation from your greatest need. Now I'm going to add a caveat here. I don't guarantee healing. I don't guarantee great wealth. Those aren't promised in the Bible. That's why I said our greatest need is sin. See, what is promised in Jesus Christ is to make you right with God, the one who is all-powerful, who will place you on the right path, who will give you a relationship. I ask non-Christians, don't you want that? Don't you want the peace given to the woman after her healing? Don't you want the calmness found in Jairus after Jesus immediately starts walking towards his house? It can be yours. It can be yours with a humble heart, humble faith in Jesus Christ. Christians, you know this path. You know the path that Jairus and this woman walked to the beach. Because you've walked it before. You've recognized your need. You've felt the desperation, humbled yourself, and placed your faith in Christ alone. Haven't you? Claim yourself to be a Christian? Where do you think your faith is in? Is it in some moment that you had as a child? Is it in some emotional moment that you had as a teen at some summer camp or winter camp? Is it in the warm feeling you get when you put some money into the cup or the plate or the box? Is it in your theological tradition or in your confession? See, faith is in Jesus Christ. It's not some passing fancy. I'll conclude with this Lewis quote. Lewis says, Faith is holding on to something that your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. It means no matter where your feelings lie, in that moment, in that day, or that week, or that month, you still cling to the cross. Because he is the only one who can forgive you your sins, and he is the only one who can deal with your greatest need. Brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, place your faith in Jesus Christ alone.